1: walking the path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing Buddhist chanting, helping you to develop your Buddhist chanting practice. If this is your first time joining us, we get together here on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday in order to share the teachings of Gautama Buddha on the path to enlightenment. This enlightened mental state is where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently it no longer experiences discontent feelings such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment. All of these discontent feelings can be eliminated from the mind through training the mind and understanding the Buddhist teachings and applying them in your life. Because In order to progress on this path you need to have guidance from a teacher in order to learn the teachings and then independently train the mind in order to observe that the teachings are truth so that you can then acquire wisdom as the mind acquires this new wisdom through observing these truths in real life then the mind starts functioning differently in the world. And it starts to understand that these discontent feelings are actually being caused by the mind. So when you experience anger, frustration, irritation, or guilt, or shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all of these discontent feelings are actually being caused by your mind, by the mind, by you. And because you're causing them, you can also eliminate them. And the way that you do that is through training the mind in the Buddhist teachings. So on Sunday, we spend time going through this book chapter by chapter in what's called our group learning program. This week, we're on chapter 21, which is titled, Do No Harm, What is the Future of the Planet? And then this Sunday coming up, we'll be in chapter 22. In about another month, we'll be restarting that program all the way from the beginning, which is chapter one. And then starting on June 9th, which is a Saturday, we're going to be starting our Pali Canon in English program, where we're going to be studying the Buddhist teachings in English using these books. There's 13 books that A temple here in Thailand has gone through the Pali Canon in English, and they've extracted out of these 45 volumes of large books, they've extracted some of the most important teachings on each individual topic, like this particular book that you could read in probably about an hour and a half or so. It's all based on Gama, It's all about Gama. So we're going to be studying the Buddhist teachings in his own words on Saturdays at 9 o'clock Thai time. But you'll need a set of these books or somehow get access to them. I have some of them online in PDF format, but it's really going to be best if you have the actual printed version, which you can get on our website, Buddha and I can send you a set of these. And if you just starting out with us, it's really a good idea if you do study this book first because this book is like a bachelor's degree or master's degree in Buddhist studies where you can go through this book over about a six-month period, and a lot of people will spend even more time, even a year or so. There's some students that have told me they've read this book five, six, eight different times, and each time they're learning more and more because not only is there reading, but at the end of each chapter, there's videos, there's podcasts, there's quizzes. There's even the audiobook that you can listen to. And there's these talks that will help to further expand your understanding. And you can also get personal guidance where you schedule an appointment with me every week or every two weeks or once a month or whenever you need to. You can schedule time with me to talk personally to really get help in developing your own practice. So I'm making all these resources available to you whether it's a book, audiobook, podcast, podcasts, videos, quizzes, personal guidance, these online classes, and you can really dive into the Buddhist teachings, observing the truth in his teachings for yourself and then gaining the wisdom of his teachings to improve the condition of the mind and train the mind. And that's what's brought us to today, which is a Wednesday. On Wednesdays, we do breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, chanting and we rotate these once every three weeks and today is the day that we're doing chanting so I'm going to help you guys understand how to do chanting but even before that we're gonna talk about why are we even chanting what's the purpose or what's the benefit of chanting because anything that I usually teach I always feel it's important to understand the why why are you doing this because if you don't understand the why then you kind of wonder, like, why should I even do this? I don't understand how it's even applicable to this path to enlightenment. So we're gonna spend some time here to talk about the benefits of chanting and why do we actually chant? And once you understand that, and you ask any questions that you would like then we're going to move into actually doing the chanting and learning it and then at the end of our class we'll have some open discussion where you can ask any questions that you like about anything on the path to enlightenment so i'm really pleased that you're here i'm really glad that you've joined us and i would like to just welcome you whether it's your first time or your hundredth time joining us Because it's really nice to get together as a community, either on Sunday, Wednesday, or Saturday, or all three of these days, and really dive into the teachings, help you to learn, and then you can use this in your life to improve the quality of the mind and improve the quality of your life. So welcome. I'm really glad you're here. Let's go ahead and talk about the benefits of chanting. And then after we discuss that, we'll move into allowing you to ask any questions that you might have related to this. Chanting has been done for a really long time. During the lifetime of the Buddha, what he taught was all oral. He didn't write anything down during his lifetime. He spoke and people learned what he had to share. They learned his teachings. They implemented his teachings. They observed the truth in his teachings and then through that their mind awakened more and more to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful calm serene and content with joy and as part of enlightenment the mind becomes very clear it becomes very focused very concentrated there's a lot of memory that is developed you really develop profound memory through awakening the mind and gaining and attaining this enlightened mental state so people remembered his teachings word for word during the course of his 45 years of teaching. But once he died, people decided that it was probably a good idea if they wrote some of this stuff down, and that's where ultimately we get the Pali Canon. But there was probably some versions long before that because the Pali Canon that we use today dates back a little over a 1,000 years ago, about 1,200, 1,300 years ago. And prior to that, the Buddha lived twelve or thirteen hundred years before that so he lived actually two thousand five hundred years ago so once he taught orally people remembered the teachings and one of the ways that they remembered the teachings is they chanted them and this is where chanting kind of really got started is reciting the teachings and this really helped refine the memory and really helped to practice retaining information through chanting so chanting has been used in this theravada buddhist tradition for many 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 centuries to remember the teachings and hand them down from one generation to the next and because of that we actually chant in the pali language the source language for the buddhist teachings which are written and documented in the pali language and as we chant as a community whether you chant in sri lanka or burma or lao thailand Cambodia or anywhere in the world that's practicing the Theravada teachings, we all chant in a very similar way. So what you're going to learn here with me today, you can go to any Theravada Buddhist community and you can actually chant right along with that community because we're all chanting with the same language. Even though you've maybe never participated at that particular venue, you can still chant right along with them because we're all learning the same chants. The way that I use chanting is I use it before meditation and I use it after meditation as a way of setting up mindfulness in front of me. The Buddhist teachings on this were that prior to meditation, he taught that we should all set up mindfulness in front of us. In the Pali Canon itself, it doesn't say exactly what you should do in order to set up mindfulness in front of you. But the Buddha clearly says in his teachings, prior to meditation, set up mindfulness in front of you. And what mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. Awareness of mind is having alertness or understanding and knowing what feelings are arising and what feelings are there in the mind. So in order to actually meditate, you're going to have certain thoughts and ideas arise in the mind. And as they do, it's important that you're aware of those. So chanting is a way for you to start gaining awareness of mind prior to actually meditating. Now you don't have to do chanting. Chanting isn't required, but it's something that you can do. And if you would like to do it, it's something that you're able to learn and practice, but it's not something that's absolutely required of you. So if you were interested in setting up mindfulness in front of you, you can do other things besides just chanting. Chanting is just one option of something that you can do. So if you practice chanting, you learn it and practice it, and it works for you and you enjoy it, and it's something that really helps to develop your meditation practice and helps you further refine your meditation, then you should use it and enjoy it and make it part of your practice. But if not, then you should definitely find other things that help you to set up mindfulness in front of you, becoming aware of the mind, because as you become aware of the mind, then there's going to be better concentration as part of that. And you're going to be able to develop the memory because if you don't practice memorizing things, then the mind isn't going to get that practice. So when you first start learning chanting, a big part of learning chanting is just memorizing the chants. And by practicing memorization of the chants and kind of flexing this muscle, so to speak, of the mind, then more and more and more, you will be able to recall things and have this refined memory because you've actually practiced memorizing things like chants. So chanting will help you not only set up mindfulness before your meditation, but it will also develop your awareness of mind, your concentration in your memory. It also helps you develop awareness of breath, which is really important as part of meditation because with breathing mindfulness meditation, which is the primary type of meditation that the Buddha taught, you're becoming aware of the breath, focusing the mind on the breath. And when any thoughts of the past or the future or any ideas or thoughts come to mind during meditation, the Buddha taught to let them go or cut them off and focus on the breath. So when you're chanting, there needs to be a good amount of breath awareness and it's just like almost like singing. If you talk to any singers, they will tell you that a large majority of their ability to sing is having awareness of their breath and kind of managing their breath. So while you're learning chanting and you're developing that practice, you become very aware of the breath. And that helps to lead you into meditation because you're now becoming aware of the mind. You're becoming aware of the breath. And those are exactly what you need in meditation to help train the mind. When you're meditating, it also helps to kind of slowly relax the mind and ease it into meditation, which is really helpful because if you just go from daily life and try to plop down and actually meditate, oftentimes the mind is too busy and it's too overactive. So if you kind of have this little buffer where you've made a decision to actually meditate, you go wherever you're going to go to meditate and you actually sit down and do some chanting, it can kind of ease the mind, relax it, and kind of slow it down, easing it into meditation. So you've got this little bit of a buffer rather than just kind of plopping down and trying to meditate, you can actually ease it into meditation through slowing the mind down and relaxing it with chanting. When you first start meditating, or even after you've been meditating for six months or a year, your mind might be really, really busy. And it's kind of, in meditation, kind of difficult to tell whether you're making improvements in meditation or not because things are just so busy and there's a lot of chatter there. If you're learning chanting, and each time you meditate at the beginning and at the end, you're doing chanting, you're going to see from session to session There's an audible sound difference in the way that you chant from one session to the next, even one week to the next, one month to the next. You're gonna see this gradual improvement in the audio of your chanting. You might even notice this from the beginning when you first start chanting, then you meditate, and then when you're done at the back end, you might notice that your chanting has actually improved because the condition of the mind is improved during meditation. So this audible indication when you're chanting, it can actually help motivate you and encourage you and show you that your practice is indeed improving and moving and progressing in the right direction. And this can be really encouraging and motivating for you in your practice. So having that chanting there, not only does it accomplish all the other things that we talked about, but it also provides this encouragement and motivation as you're moving your practice forward because you can hear that audible indication that the chanting is improving and it helps you to see that what you're doing, the time, effort, and energy that you're applying is actually benefiting you and it's improving things. And some other things to think about is that In this practice of Theravada Buddhist teachings, we call it Theravada because Theravada means teachings of the elders, right? The elders, the people in the past, the people that were older than us, earlier generations than us, that have passed the teachings down from Gautama Buddha all the way through multiple countless generations until they've reached us right now. And there's a certain amount of respect and gratitude that we can cultivate for the elders that have passed down these teachings for all these generations. Because respect and gratitude is part of the path to enlightenment. If you're training the mind in meditation and doing all these other teachings, and you didn't have respect for other people in your life, if you didn't have gratitude for people in your life, you would never be able to attain enlightenment because the mind is still holding back and being disrespectful or unappreciative. So by cultivating respect and gratitude for the elders through your chanting, you can then translate that cultivated respect and gratitude in the mind. You can then translate that into your daily life, treating all beings with respect and gratitude. And this is a really beneficial quality of mind that you can then practice in daily life. So these are just some of the Benefits that I see in chanting and what I observe, how the mind can improve through a chanting practice. What's also important to share is what chanting isn't, right? We talked about the benefits of chanting, but let's talk about what chanting isn't. Some people call chanting mantras. There is no magical, mystical benefits associated with chanting or mantras. There's some people that believe that. If you say these certain words and you chant these certain words with a certain tone and a certain tempo, and if you say them enough times that you'll instantly get enlightened. Or if you say these chants, you will get a longer life. Or if you say these chants, you'll have good luck. Or if you say these chants or mantras, it will eliminate your unwholesome karma. All these different things. There's lots and lots of different beliefs around if you chant this thing, then there's some beneficial outcome that's going to happen as a result. Maybe you find the long lost love that you always wanted in your life. This is not true. There's nothing in the Buddhist teachings that talks about chanting. And if you chant in a certain way, that there's going to be some magical or mystical benefits associated with that. So make sure that if you do decide to develop a chanting practice, that you understand the real goal of this is to develop the mind, develop this concentration and memory, become aware of the breath and ease the mind into meditation. Use it as a way to indicate that your practice is improving and then also share this gratitude and respect with the elders to train the mind in the direction of enlightenment It's not going to actually produce anything like a prayer. Some people have been taught that if you pray a certain way, that there's going to be some beneficial outcome. That's not what we're doing here on this path to enlightenment. This path to enlightenment is all about training your mind so that you can eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and you can cultivate wholesome qualities. And by eliminating these unwholesome qualities and cultivating these wholesome qualities, Now the mind will perform more optimally in daily life and you will experience better results based on your decisions in your life, not based on just chanting and then some beneficial thing will happen. It's through your actual decisions in your life and how you train the mind and how you talk to people, how you treat people, how you spend time with people that's going to end up determining if the mind becomes more and more peaceful or not. So these are just some of the benefits and some of the things to be aware of that we're not doing as part of our chanting practice. And I would like to just open things up for questions. If you're in Facebook, you can type your question, or if you're in YouTube, you can type your question as well as in Zoom, you can type your question into the comment section. Our moderator, James, will make sure that your question gets asked during class. And if you're in Zoom, you also have the ability to electronically raise your hand and you can ask your question or any follow-up questions directly. So let me see if there's any questions on anything that we've shared so far before we go further into our class.
2: Hi, David, we do have one question. It comes from Max. He would like to know, would you be able to explain the difference between respect for elders, admiring others, and placing ourselves beneath others
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Respect and gratitude is, you know, appreciation and having this reverence or this appreciation is the best word that I can think of to really encapsulate gratitude and respect. We're not putting ourselves below our elders. We're not putting ourselves below the monks or the beacony, for example. We're not putting ourselves below the president of our country or the king or other people that have certain positions. But what is healthy for the mind is not putting yourself below these people, because then the mind's going to look up to them and perhaps be uncalm, be shaken up, your palms will be sweaty, you can't get your thoughts together because you feel like you're so much below other people, and you really degrade or disparage your own self. What respect and gratitude is about is just acknowledging the contribution that these people have made in order to share the teachings through their time, effort, and energy all through the ages, all through these countless generations. And not just time, effort, and energy, but their resources as well. Spending time copying these teachings from one book to the next. Because 2,000 years ago, they didn't have a photocopy machine, right? They didn't have a hard drive to store these teachings on and run them off on a printer. What they used to do is they used to dry out these leaves that they would write down these manuscripts. But first they had to go out in the forest. They had to pick these leaves. They had to dry them out with the sun. Once they were dried out, they had to also create the ink and develop the ink and the writing instruments. And they would look at this old manuscript that had the written teachings down and they would just copy them painstakingly one to the next, to the next, to the next. I mean, if you saw just one version of the Pali Canon, even in printed copy, the temple here in Thailand, it took them 10 years to create just this one book, and that's with all our modern technology. So if you can imagine going out in the forest, drying these leaves, creating the ink, painstakingly copying from one to the next, and there's so much time, effort, energy, and resources that have gone into that, and having this appreciation for that effort and those people that have done that is really beneficial for the mind. And having respect and gratitude for people in your life, people that do things for you and even people who don't do things for you. I mean, just your neighbor being a nice neighbor who is easy to get along with, who keeps their house looking nice, or even somebody whose house isn't quite as nice. Maybe they're really busy. Maybe they don't have the funds or the resources to keep up with it. But just having respect and gratitude for all people, not looking down on people and not looking up to people, is really healthy for the mind. And this is just one way that you can start to cultivate that. Sometimes it's easy to kind of cultivate respect and gratitude for people that you've maybe never met before. And then as you do that and you get better and better at that, people in your current life, who maybe you have challenges with, you can find it easier and easier to have respect and gratitude for them as well.
2: Thanks, David. That's the only question we have for this moment.
1: Okay. So let's move to the very first chant that I would like to share with you guys, which is a very common chant that you'll find at pretty much all the different Theravada venues that are sharing the Theravada teachings. When this community comes together, any kind of event that they hold, they will almost always start out with the entire community chanting this chant. And we call it the triple gem or the triple jewel. What we refer to as the triple gem or triple jewel, whenever you see three in Buddhist teachings, it's referring to the Buddha, which is the master teacher, Gautama Buddha, the Dhamma or his teachings, And then the third one is the Sangha, or the community. Because in order to attain enlightenment, you would need to have confidence in the Buddha. You would need to have access to his teachings. And you would need to be part of a community of practitioners that has teachers and practitioners as part of that community. If you just had one of these things, or if you just had two of these things, you wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment. You need all three. So if you only had confidence in the Buddha and that was it, and you just felt like this man was surely enlightened, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment because you don't have access to his teachings and you're not participating as part of a community. But if you had confidence in the Buddha and let's say that you acquired content, the actual teachings in the Pali Canon you still wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment because you need access to a community of people that has teachers and practitioners, people you can discuss the teachings with and get help and guidance from. So if you just had one or two of these things, you know, you wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment. So if you had confidence in the Buddha and you were part of a community of practitioners, but you didn't have access to the teachings, you still wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment and this is one of the things that is a real challenge for people even here in thailand there's lots of people that have confidence in the buddha and really admire him and respect him for his teachings there's a huge community of practitioners here in thailand and you would think that every single temple would have his teachings there but it's actually not true not every single temple actually has the pali canon or access to the true teaching so That's one of the reasons why we don't see massive numbers of enlightened people around because they don't have all three of these things. So it's important to have all three of these. And that's why we call it the triple gem or the triple jewel. And we will start each individual event in a Theravada setting, paying respect and gratitude to the triple gem or the triple jewel. The first phrase, paying respect and gratitude to the Buddha, the second one to the Dhamma, or to his teachings, and then the third one to the Sangha, or the community of practitioners and teachers. And we chant this like this. I'm going to chant it first, and then we'll chant it together as a class. So let me let you hear it, how it sounds first. I'll go through each of the three phrases. Sounds like this. Arahang
3: samma Po tang SAVAKHATO AMHAKVATATAMMO DAMANG NAMASAMI
1: so this is the triple gem or the triple jewel, and if you notice, there at the end of each phrase, because I'm sitting in a chair, I just raised my hands up to my head, out of respect and gratitude for each of those triple gem. If you are sitting on the floor at a temple, a lot of times people will either bring their hands up to their head, like I did or they will actually bow or prostrate down to the ground as a way of showing respect and gratitude to each of these three. Now, this particular chant, from everything that I've been able to see, it looks like this came after the Buddha. In fact, these chants that I'm sharing with you are pretty much chants that people, I feel, created after the Buddha. The Buddha didn't teach people to worship him or bow down to him. It was people who had respect and gratitude for his teachings, seeing the benefit and the effect that it had on their mind, that they then developed this respect and gratitude. And during his lifetime, people did bow down to him, but not because he taught them to do so, but just because of their own admiration and respect for his teachings and his guidance and all that he shared with the people. And then, as far as I can tell, after his death, they created this chant as a way of showing respect and gratitude to him. And one of the things that's helpful is not only learning the Pali chant, but learning the English translation that goes along with it. Because if you understand the words, then they're going to have much more meaning for you and much more impact. So I've shared that here with you, that this first phrase, the meaning and translation of it is the perfectly enlightened one that's the Buddha, is worthy and rightly self awakened. That's one of the criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they are self awakened. They don't have any teachers or guides. And that's one of the primary qualities or criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha. And then during their lifetime, they will help guide countless other people to enlightenment during their lifetime and then when they die they will leave the teachings in such a way that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death and these are some of the three main criteria that makes a buddha a buddha self-awakened they help and guide countless other people during their lifetime to enlightenment through their self discovered teachings the teachings that a buddha will understand are going to be unique to that individual and he will guide people to enlightenment during his lifetime, and then leave the teachings in such a way that countless other people can attain enlightenment after his death. And that's one of the ways that we know that Gautama Buddha, or the man who started out with the name Siddhartha Gautama, was an actual Buddha because he attained enlightenment by himself without the help of any teachers. He guided countless people to enlightenment during his lifetime, and then once he died, countless more people attained enlightenment after his death. So that's what a perfectly enlightened one is, is worthy and rightly self-awakened. I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. And remember, this isn't something that the Buddha actually taught, but it's something people did out of admiration and respect for him. The second phrase is the Dhamma, which is his teachings, is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. So he explained it so well, right? I pay respect to the Dhamma. This is kind of acknowledging his teachings are well explained and he's done such a good job explaining all of these teachings that lead to enlightenment. The third phrase, the Sangha, the community of practitioners of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples has practiced well. I pay respect to the community or to the Sangha because during the lifetime of the Buddha, there were multiple groups of people who said that they had attained enlightenment and their master teacher had the true teachings that are the path to enlightenment. But A lot of those other teachers, as they came in contact with the Buddha, they would become angered or frustrated or irritated or their ego would come out as a result of discussing the teachings with the Buddha. And because of that, people knew that they weren't enlightened. And oftentimes their students would join the Buddha or that teacher themselves would join with the Buddha and become a student of the Buddha when they're saying here the sangha of the perfectly enlightened one they're identifying his community of practitioners because there was other communities as well besides his he wasn't the only one who was teaching this path to enlightenment there were other people who claimed that they had discovered the path to enlightenment but their teachings were different than the buddhas and over 2,500 years later, it's the Buddhist teachings that have stood the test of time. So what we're saying here in this third phrase is the community of practitioners that are practicing the Buddhist teachings, they have practiced well, meaning they're polite, they're kind, they're friendly, they're respectful, they're moving their mind and training their mind in this direction of enlightenment. So we're acknowledging this community and paying respect and gratitude to them. Okay. So let's chant this together as a class, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, in the Zoom classroom, if you're on the podcast, you're hearing this and you can keep yourself muted, but let's all chant it together so you can practice chanting along with somebody because that's one of the ways to help you memorize it. And also it's one of the ways for you to get your tone down as well. So I'm going to help cue your breath a little bit because there's certain points where it's nice to take a breath, and I'll kind of walk you through this a little bit and help you develop this practice. So bring your hands together with palm facing each other, two palms together, right in the middle of your sternum, kind of like a prayer-like position, right at the sternum of your chest. Take a nice deep breath, inhaling, and now let's chant. Ara hung some
3: hoto hakawa Breath. Po tongue hakawa nung, Little bow here. Nice deep breath sava khato mahakavatammo breath damang namasami little bow nice deep breath supati pano mahakavato half breath Sawaka sanko, breath namami
1: and then bow. Okay, let's do that again. But I'm not going to cue the breath, and I won't cue the bow. You'll just kind of know where to take that little half breath and where to do the brow. Okay, so nice deep breath. Let's chant together.
3: Arahang samasam Savarkhato Mahagavata tammo
1: okay good job if you're learning in a classroom a lot of times we clap everybody clap 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 yay we did a good job right not feeling prideful or arrogant but yeah just congratulate ourselves a little bit putting the effort and time into learning and practicing these teachings. That's fine to kind of encourage each other along the path. Let's see if there's anyone who has questions on this chant or how to chant it or anything like that.
2: Hi, David. I was wondering if if we're into meditation and we're going into meditation, is there a specific number of times that we should chant or should we potentially chant until the mind is clear?
1: It's up to you. I chant three chants once in order to go into meditation, but when I first started chanting, I would do these chants multiple times because I was really trying to soak it into the mind. So if you're just starting out in your practice and you wanted to do this two, three, four, five times before your meditation, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It'll help to just soak it into the mind and lead you further into the meditation. When I've timed this from the beginning to the end, it takes me about two and a half minutes to slowly chant all the chants that I chant prior to meditation and at the end of meditation. So that gives me like a two and a half minute little buffer. But if you did it more than once, it would just give you more time to develop your practice because maybe just going through once, you're not noticing the retention or the ability to remember the chants as the way that you would like. So the more time and effort and dedication you apply to it, the more that's going to soak into the mind and you'll be able to retain it. So if you'd like to do these multiple times like I did when I first started, feel free to do that. And sometimes I even did this without even meditating. I would just sit down and actually work on chanting for 30 minutes or an hour. Or I don't know if you guys want to hear this, but even in the shower, sometimes I used to chant as a way of like, getting my mind ready in the morning, I would do some chanting while I was in the shower in the morning or in the evening when I'm taking a shower. Or if I was in like a tunnel where the acoustics were really good, I would oftentimes chant um, or even just chant quietly in your own mind just to kind of memorize it. If you're on a train or a subway or you're on a bus on the, your commute to work, you could be quietly chanting this in the mind as a way of recalling it and helping you to memorize it. All of those kind of tactics are really good to help it soak into the mind.
2: All right, thanks for clarifying that, David. We don't have any more questions at this time.
1: Okay, let's move to the next chant, which is a lot shorter. And sometimes people will start out with this chant as their very first chant. Here in Thailand, you'll see three year old children, you know, five year old children chanting this pretty much as soon as they start learning how to talk and mouth words, they will start chanting this particular chant. This chant, it's just one phrase and you repeat it three times. And it's all about respect for the Buddha. So you see the translation here is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one, right? And same thing here. We're going to bring our Hands together at our chest. I'll do this three times. So I'll do three phrases and then I'll ask you guys and invite you to join. So here's how it sounds. <laughs>
3: Nap moid bhagavato pako ato Hada hato some ma
1: sam So notice there there's no bows. And there's just that one little point in the middle where you can take a little half breath if you need it. And it's just the same phrase three times. And when you learn this and you remember it, you'll see some of these same syllables in the other chant, So it kind of makes the other chant a little bit easier. And as I mentioned there, the translation is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one this one is all about respect to Gautama Buddha so let's do this one together I'll cue the breath the first time we'll do it three phrases the first time I'll cue the breath for each phrase and then we'll do it a second time without any cueing of the breath okay so bring your hands together at your sternum palm to palm take a nice deep breath
3: Nap moid her half breath. ARAHATO hato SAMPUTASA man some half breath. ARAHATO hato SAMPUTASA Nice, deep breath. Half breath.
1: breath. Okay, so now that you got a little bit of familiarity with it, let's just do it without being cued on the breath. Here, just take a nice deep breath to get started and then we'll just do this three times.
3: Nap mod hasab hako ato. Ara hato
1: Okay, just a nice, short, simple chant. Okay, and it should be nice and even paced like that. You want to ensure that you have kind of the same tempo all the way through your chants. You don't want to do them really, really, really fast. Because that's just encouraging the mind to be really active and move really fast. So you want to kind of use the chanting as a way to kind of slow down and put this buffer between your daily life and moving into meditation. So you can just kind of slow the mind down with these chants. Any questions on this one?
2: We have a question from Amina about chanting in general. She asks, are the benefits of chanting the same if we have to read the chant before memorizing it fully
1: you'll notice that when you memorize it that your benefits will be greater so when you first get started it's almost like kind of tripping over your feet a little bit not knowing the syllables and trying to refine it and dial it in better and better and better so there's definitely benefits in doing that because you're refining the memory you're building your concentration you're building your practice But then, what you'll notice is once you finally get away from looking at the actual chant and text, and you can do it from memory, you'll really be able to soak into it and you'll get so much more benefit because now the mind has been more finely tuned. You've got better concentration at that point, you've got better memory, you can really soak into the chants. So, it's going to take you a little while to get there, but once you do, you will notice more benefits without looking at the actual text.
2: That's all the questions we have for now on this one, David.
1: Okay, so let's go to the third chant. This one's a little bit more challenging just because it has more syllables if you haven't been chanting before. But it's definitely something that you can work on over time and kind of get better and better at. And those other chants that we've already done will kind of help you build up for this one because there's similar syllables here that you saw in the other chants. The way that this one sounds is like this. I'll do it for you once, and then we can do it together as a class. Here, I'll take a nice deep breath.
3: Little breath. HARA HANG SAMA hoto Deep breath WICCACARA NANG SAMHOTO Little breath SAW SAKHA TORO Nice breath Anu tero sa. Breath. Dama sati sata tava manu sanang. Half-breath. Bhutto
1: bhagavati. And then a little bow there at the end. right? So, there's just two half-breaths there on that last phrase. And the meaning here is quite more than the previous chance. The first phrase, the ETP so, is he's the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one. Once again, it's the same English translation, just with different Pali. So each chance is just affirming, yes, you are a Buddha, right? You are rightly self-awakened. And then it goes on to say consummate in knowledge. Consummate is like a high degree, right? He's gone beyond. He's this deep, deep knowledge or deep wisdom, high degree or high skill of knowledge and conduct. Because remember, in order to attain enlightenment, there needs to be this deep, profound wisdom, which here is being translated as knowledge. But then that wisdom is going to improve your conduct, An enlightened being is no longer going to speak harshly. They're no longer going to lie. They're no longer going to be angered or aggressive or hostile. Their conduct is going to be really improved now that they're functioning in this enlightened mind. So for a Buddha to attain enlightenment, they're going to have a high degree of wisdom and conduct, their moral conduct. right? So they're speech, their actions, and their livelihood, this moral conduct that we talk about as part of the Eightfold Path. And then the other part here is one who has gone the good way, right, has walked towards the light, knower of the worlds. What this refers to is the five realms of existence. In order for a Buddha to become a Buddha, a Buddha would have seen their past lives, They would have knowledge on the five realms of existence. They would be the knower of the worlds or the knower of the five realms. They would have knowledge of these five realms and be able to explain them to people. So in order for him to be considered a Buddha, not only would he have to be self-awakened, but he would have to be able to share this wisdom, this high degree of knowledge and wisdom with others, he would have to have this you know, moral conduct that is far surpassed what other people have. And then he would also need to know this five realms and what exists in these five realms, right? And then the last phrase there is unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. A Buddha is someone who's going to train human beings in this wisdom and in this moral conduct. So a Buddha is going to need to be able to be a very good trainer they're going to be able to need to speak very clearly very concisely very directly being able to guide people through this path to enlightenment because the unenlightened mind is going to be very congested it's going to be very burdened and it's very difficult for the unenlightened mind to have memorization and clarity of mind and concentration and memory so A Buddha is going to need to be able to train these congested or burdened minds and be very, very good at that in order to be really considered a Buddha. They're going to need to be able to lead people to enlightenment. And here it says those who can be taught. Another way to say this is those who choose to be taught. Because a Buddha is not going to go out and force their teachings on other people. A Buddha is going to make themselves available and provide guidance and support and encouragement along this path, but they're not going to go out and force people. It's only people who are choosing to be taught. You can't force someone to attain enlightenment because there's a million and one decisions that someone needs to make in order to attain enlightenment, and that can't be forced. It has to be someone who's choosing to be taught. So once someone chooses to be taught a Buddha, will be an unexcelled trainer of someone who's able to do that. And what you'll see with the Buddhist teachings is people will be able to make progress very quickly with a Buddhist teachings because they have such deep, profound wisdom that they know very clearly exactly what is the path to enlightenment. And they can very precisely give guidance and support and teachings of how to progress on this path. But it's only for people who choose to be taught or people who can be taught. And then here it talks about he's the teacher of humans and divine beings, because it's only in the human realm and the heavenly realm that beings can attain enlightenment. In the other realms of hell, afflicted spirits, and animal realm, they can't actually attain enlightenment. It's only the human realm and the heavenly beings in the heavenly realm that can actually attain enlightenment. So the Buddha of course, taught many, many humans, but there's also depictions during his lifetime that there were heavenly beings who came as well and lit up the sky and asked for teachings from him. And this is documented in the Pali Canon during his lifetime of these occurrences of heavenly beings seeking teachings from the Buddha in order to attain enlightenment. And then the last little part here of the translation is awakened and perfectly enlightened. We call a Buddha perfectly enlightened because they don't have any teachers. They don't have any conditioning from other people. They don't have someone who's told them to use certain language or use certain ways of referring to the teachings or have impressed upon them their ways of doing things. So a person who's studying with a teacher is going to be learning certain things from their teacher And there's going to be certain misunderstandings there as the teachings have been passed down over multiple generations. But someone who doesn't have a teacher, they're going to have the freedom to explain things in their own way, in the way that they understand them. They're going to use wording and phrasing that other people aren't using in their teachings because a Buddha isn't confined to explaining things the way that was explained to him by a teacher because a Buddha doesn't have any teachers. So a Buddha is going to have to find the language through their own experiences of awakening their mind on their own without the help of any teachers. They're going to have to find the language themselves in which to explain what it was that led to their self-awakening. So the language and the phrasing and the way that a Buddha talks about their teachings is going to be very unique to any other teacher that exists. So that's why we call them a perfectly enlightened one, because their mind is not tainted or conditioned or influenced. It's not even influenced by an outside source. They have perfect enlightenment because they did it by themselves and they were able to attain this mental state without the influence of outside sources. And thus, they need to come up with their own language and be able to explain what it was that led to their enlightenment. So that's why we call a Buddha the perfectly enlightened one, because they have perfect enlightenment and they understand this path so, so clearly more than any other being because they had to figure it out for themselves. The last Buddha that currently known to the world existed over 2,500 years ago, and there hasn't been one that the world is currently aware of at this time since his death, 2,500 years ago. In some traditions, if you attain enlightenment, they say you're a Buddha. But in this tradition of the Theravada teachings, we don't consider someone who's attained enlightenment a Buddha. Because there's multiple criteria that someone needs to meet in order to be considered a Buddha. And I shared three of those criteria previously. But someone who attains enlightenment through the guidance of a teacher is an enlightened being or an enlightened person. They're just not perfectly enlightened as someone who has attained enlightenment on their own, who guides countless other people through their self-teachings that they discovered on their own and then leave their teachings behind so that other people can become enlightened after their death so this is why we refer to a buddha as a perfectly enlightened one okay so let's do this one together now that you understand more of the meaning of this you can kind of sit with that and reflect on that and understand what you're actually really chanting let's chant this one together Bring your hands together just like we did before, palm to palm at your sternum. I'll cue the breath here on the first time through and then the second time I won't cue the breath. Take a nice deep breath. Iti Pisoa
3: Mahakava Half breath. Ara Sama Deep breath. Wicacaranang Samuno. Half breath there. Sakato Rokawitu. Deep breath. Anu tero sa, half breath. Damasati sata manu half breath. Poto
1: Okay, now let's do this one again, but I won't cue the breath. It kind of let you settle into it a little bit more okay nice deep breath here at the beginning
3: iti <laughs> piso We cha cha ranang sa witu. Anu te ro Sati
1: and that's where you would slip into your meditation and just kind of ease the mind right down into meditation. Okay. So let's see if there's any questions on this one.
2: I was wondering if there's any special significance to the order in which we do the chants and perhaps the fact that we do this one last before slipping into meditation.
1: This is the way that I've always done them. I know that the very first one you know, is really important because we're acknowledging the three jewels, the three gems, triple gem, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. That one's pretty much always first. I've been to some places where they'll do the Natmottasah first but it's pretty much always the Arahamsama Sambutasā, and then going into the Natmo Tasa. And the ETP, so this one is usually much later because depending on what event you're going to, they will ha- sometimes chant for 30 minutes or an hour even. Temples here in Thailand in the morning and evening, they will chant for about 30 minutes and then do meditation each morning and each evening. And each temple will have their own chanting book and they'll have the chants in different orders. Um, And each temple is going to be unique and different. So if you ever go to a temple and you're planning to participate in the chanting, you can pick up a book when you first walk in and it'll have all the chants. In America, they will typically have them in English like I'm showing you here. But in Thailand, all the chants are in Thai script. They don't really have them in English uh, much here in Thailand, so this is just the order that I do them, and it's just based on the Arahang Sa and the Namotasa are always first, and then this chant has always been a chant that I've always appreciated and always liked. So I put a lot of effort into learning this chant, and I used to chant it regularly with my students in America. So this one, since it's a little bit more challenging. I put this one at the end.
2: And to clarify, if we're in our practice have only learned perhaps one chant, we can still derive benefits from practicing that one chant before going into meditation, right?
1: Yeah, like that namotasa. I used to do that one exclusively by itself. I used to do the, that same phrase maybe like nine times and then go into meditation. And then over months of learning that one and refining it, then I added the arahang samasambutasa and then the Namotasah, and I would go into meditation. I would do that one for several months. And then over many years, I learned this etp So chant. And then as I refined that one, then I had kind of the full portfolio of chants. And I was able to do all of them over a longer period of time. So if you would like to just do the namotasa or you would like to just do the Arhang Samasamotasah, you can just do one and build up your proficiency with that. And then when you're ready, add the next one. Or you can just take them all and just do them all and learn them all at the same time. It just depends on how you would like to chip away at this. And this is why we call it an independent practice. That the teacher's role is to provide guidance and help along the, the path. But then you choose what's the best way for you to implement this in your life. And then when you work with it independently and you seek more guidance and more help and more support, then your teacher's there for you to provide guidance. But how you decide to bring these on into your practice is totally up to you and personal choice.
2: Okay. Those are all the questions that we have on chanting for now. Okay. Well,
1: what I'll do then is I'll just in class and just kind of encourage you guys to continue to learn and practice these teachings. Because, you know, if this is the first time you've learned chanting, then you're not quite sure how it's going to fit in or if it's going to fit into your practice. Right. And whenever you learn something from a teacher, you kind of got to give it a good try. You got to give it a good go. So if this is the first time you've learned chanting, I suggest you work with it for three, four, five, six, eight weeks and see how it fits, and see if it's something you're enjoying learning, seeing if you feel like it's something that's motivating and encouraging your practice. Is it helping your meditation? And if you notice that it's benefiting you in that time frame, then great, keep it, and keep developing it, and keep refining it, and keep seeking guidance. But if after you've given it a good while of trying and working with it, if you're noticing like, eh, you don't really enjoy it too much, it doesn't really help you and you're not really seeing the benefits with it, then it's okay. You can leave it to the side and not use it because there's no aspect of this path to enlightenment that would require somebody to do chanting. But you definitely will need to do meditation, and you definitely will need to set up mindfulness or awareness of mind in front of you before meditating and you definitely will need to develop this awareness of mind, this concentration, this memory. You're going to need to develop this respect and gratitude but there's other ways to do that besides with chanting. So chanting is just one option of something that you can use. I've found it to be very, very beneficial in my practice and that's why I still use it and that's why I teach it but you may have a different experience with it. I think it's really nice to get together with a community of practitioners all in a temple and everybody's practicing this chant at the same time. If you can imagine, you know, 50, 100, 300, a few thousand people all chanting together, it's just so powerful. The words and everybody harmonizing and Normally, these temples have really good acoustics in them. So when everybody's chanting together, it just has this real powerfulness with it. And it really is quite invigorating for your practice. So I suggest that you definitely work with this. Try to develop your practice. Join in with some local communities at other Theravada venues that are chanting these chants. And chant along with them. And it'll help you to develop your practice. You can listen to this YouTube video, you can listen to this podcast over and over, and I've done other similar talks as well that you can use them to refine your abilities and refine your skills and help you to develop your chanting. One thing that's interesting is that when you join communities to chant, at least if your experience was the way that mine was. I never had anybody come up to me and say, you know, you're not chanting good enough. Why aren't you chanting better? Right. Like I never had any Thai person ever come up to me and say anything about chanting to me, whether I should chant or whether I shouldn't chant or anything like that. Like there was no requirement to chant. There was no uh, pressure from people that I should be chanting better or chanting worse or what have you. The only thing that anyone ever said to me in chanting is one time when I invited some monks to the center that I was teaching at and I was chanting, the monks kind of smiled and said, wow, you've put a lot of time and effort into your chanting. And I was like, yeah, I I find it quite beneficial. And they were kind of surprised that a household practitioner had put so much time and effort into Developing their chanting practice. But other than that, I've never had anybody comment. So even if you've been learning these chants for a week or two and you go into a Buddhist community, that community should be supportive and encouraging and motivating. And you should be able to just chant right along with everybody else. And there shouldn't be anybody who tries to degrade or disparage what you're doing. And if they are, it may or may not be the right community of practitioners for you, or that particular person may not be someone who's maybe practicing the teachings very closely if they're criticizing you or disparaging your chanting. But I've never experienced that in all the various temples that I went to. So I would encourage you to learn this, learn it with the podcast, learn it with the YouTube videos, to get some personal guidance, scheduling appointments with me if you'd like to learn personally. But then get into some communities where there is 20 people or 50 people or a couple hundred people chanting this together and you can kind of harmonize with everybody and you can tune your ear into the actual chanting and develop your practice more and more that way. And then once you do, you've got this beneficial result of no matter where you are in the world, you can meditate because you've based your practice off of the body, the mind, and the breath. This is all that you should need for meditation, is just the body, the mind, and the breath. If you've got gongs and music and candles and you know all these different things that are going on around you, you need music or different things to meditate, these are all things that your mind is attached to and it's longing for. And you may not be able to meditate when you're in a mountain on in a campsite, or you may not be able to meditate when you're at some other venue that doesn't have all this stuff. So if you can train the mind just to have the body, the mind, and the breath, then you can do your chanting and then you can go into meditation now and for the rest of your life, because you're always going to have the body, the mind and the breath for the rest of this life. It's when you take the last breath that the body is going to separate from the mind. The mind is going to separate from the body and the body is going to start to decay. So if you base your practice off of just these three things, then you'll be able to have this chanting practice to ease the mind into meditation get all this benefit out of your meditation, and then ease it back out on the backside of meditation. So work with it and enjoy it and let me know how I can help you as you develop your chanting practice. On Saturday, we're going to be doing our very last session of just breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. It's January 2nd, and we're going to be doing that starting at nine o'clock Thai time on Saturday. And starting next Saturday is when we're going to start our Pali Canon and English study group, where we're going to be doing a very short abbreviated meditation and then going right into studying the Buddhist teachings through his own words. On Sunday this week at nine o'clock, we're going to be in chapter 22. It's titled Mental Health, a Modern Day Delusion. Here we're going to talk about the current understanding in the world around mental health and how there's certain aspects of that that can be resolved through training the mind through buddhist teachings and i'll share with you some of my personal experiences i'll share with you some things that i've seen with students that have improved the condition of their mind and help you to better understand how you can approach mental health through the buddhist teachings without necessarily using pharmaceuticals and all this Modern day things that we have nowadays, there's ways that you can actually stabilize the mind and train the mind to be very peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy through teachings that were developed 2,500 years ago that don't require any of this modern day stuff that we currently have. Doesn't mean you won't ever need those things, it just means that you can train the mind to a point where you don't need those things long term and you can get to a permanent solution that involves training the mind and developing this enlightened mental state that is peaceful calm serene and content with joy permanently so we're going to be talking about that on sunday and then next wednesday we'll be doing breathing mindfulness meditation and just doing that as a complete session so our wednesdays are going to now become the time where we're doing the vast majority of our meditating on our Wednesday sessions because Sundays we're going to be discussing a chapter from this book, Developing a Life Practice. And then on Saturdays, we're going to be into the Polycanon and English study group. So Wednesday is going to become the day that we're doing our real deep, longer sessions of meditation. So thank you for joining. I appreciate that you are actively learning and practicing these teachings. I'll see you in class either on Saturday, Sunday, or next Wednesday. And in the meantime, remember to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to everybody that you come in contact with. See you next time. Sawadee
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha.